the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll have a conversation with Dr. Wendy Flint. She is the author of School Boards, A Call to Action. It's a training manual, if you will. She doesn't just write it out of theory, but she's actually lived it out and she has uh, trained and equipped many across the country who have later gone on to positions on school boards across the country. We'll talk with Dr. Flint in our second hour today. We'll also talk about that He Gets Us campaign. You may be seeing uh, traces of it around, but it's going to be a champion at the Super Bowl on these um, legendary commercials. We'll tell you more about that, who's funding it and what to expect also in the second hour of today's program. First, to look at some of the day's news, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake. <clears throat> it struck near the Turkish-Syrian border early Monday morning, followed by another magnitude 7.5 tremor hours later, claiming the lives of thousands. President uh, Erdogan, he announced that at least 812 people were killed in Turkey and over 5,000 injured. At least 700 have been uh, also been reported dead in North Syria. Those numbers have escalated significantly since the morning report. We do not know where the number of dead and injured can be, Erdogan told the press on Monday. More than 3,000 Turkish buildings were destroyed. The fact that it's winter, the weather is cold, and that the earthquake happened in the middle of the night makes the work harder, but everyone is working with their hearts and their souls in it to try to recover those who may still be in the rubble. The epicenter of the earthquake was the Turkish border city uh, of, well, Gaziantep, a city of more than 2 million people, which is home to one of the largest United Nations-run refugee sites hosting those fleeing the uh, the ongoing war in Syria. The house shook like a baby cradle. It was like a nightmare. I woke up the kids. I told them to stay calm. We left the building. One local resident told the Wall Street Journal everyone was shouting, crying in panic. Anywhere else in the world, this would be an emergency, said a spokesperson for the International Rescue Committee. In the aftermath of the tragedy, what we have in Syria is an emergency within an emergency. The United States Geological Survey projected that the initial damage caused by the earthquake would likely top a billion dollars. A host of world leaders, including French President Emmanuel Macron and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have pledged to assist the Turkish government's rescue and building efforts, rebuilding. My thoughts are with the people of Turkey and Syria this morning, particularly with those first responders working so valiantly to save those trapped by the earthquake. That's a uh, quote from the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tweeting on Monday. The castle in this uh, border town city, a popular tourist destination, crumbled due to the earthquake. It was built 6,000 years ago by the Romans and later renovated by another group. The capital was a central landmark in the city. It is no more. The pair of earthquakes are the deadliest to hit Turkey in over two decades and match the country's strongest ever recorded tremor back in 1939. Aftershocks of the earthquake were felt as far away as Egypt, Israel, Lebanon and Cyprus. 
Well, the Grammys uh, were last night, and, well, one of the performances was particularly provocative. Sam, uh, Smith outdid their recent Saturday Night Live performance of the song titled Unholy, collaborating with Kim Petras, both males, in a horror movie-inspired performance of the smash hit. Smith started the song in red leather, surrounded um, by a fleet of dancers that evoked Samara, uh, Samra uh, from the ring before cutting to Petras, dancing in a cage flanked by some dominatrix wearing satanic headgear, all men in women's clothing. Smith also donned a satanic top hat, as huge flames heated up the stage, Smith and Petrus won the Grammy for Best Pop Duo Group Performance earlier in the evening, and it was um, the most controversial performance of the evening. Some suggested it mocked Christianity, but one of the pair said that he and Petrus, both males, who one is, I guess, uh, gender fluid, I think the one is gender fluid and the other is transgender, Uh, said that they didn't feel welcome in religion, which was rather interesting. There's an opportunity there, and I hope that those who who know Christ and are in the entertainment industry will approach them and let them know that religion may not be the answer, but a relationship with Christ is a possibility. It invoked hell in this um, unholy uh, performance last night, and again, it was the most controversial among the performances. Meanwhile, as uh, Dmitry Badyu, a Ukrainian-American pastor, is a three-time religious refugee who last year added Russian prisoner to his list of life-or-death challenges. As a teenager in 1989, uh, he and his family fled religious persecution in the Soviet Union and moved to Texas, where they were given legal refugee status and eventually became U.S. citizens. They were free to worship as they pleased. Well, in the mid-2000s, he and his wife moved to Ukraine and founded a network of thriving evangelical Christian churches there. While pastoring a church in Crimea in 2014, he was given 10 days to pack up and leave amid the Russian invasion and annexation of the strategic port-filled peninsula. Of a couple and their kids, they moved inland to the Ukrainian city of Melitopol, And they rebuilt their churches and ministry, only to have history repeat itself last year, this time with a far more brutal chain of events. Well, after the invasion of Ukraine last February, he started sheltering some four dozen refugees at his church. That's a dangerous work. Human rights experts say Russian soldiers had targeted pastors and churches first when taking over territory in eastern Ukraine. In Russia, most Christians belong to the Russian Orthodox Church and the church leaders um, are, are based in Moscow, uh, views the uh, breakaway Orthodox Church of Ukraine as illegitimate and evangelical Christians like Baju and his uh, members of um, his Word of Life Church as apostate. Well, after rockets started hitting the city of Melitopol in early March, the U.S. Embassy called him and let him know he could leave and seek legal refuge in the United States. But he said, That we've not gone to leave the church. We're not going to do that. We cannot leave the church and go, he said. So he stayed and his family stayed with him. And they worked the first weeks when the war started in the city because it was like Armageddon. Well, in March, at about 630 in the evening, a group of Russian soldiers ransacked their home and churches and captured him, put a black bag over his head and carried him away, took him to jail where he they alternatively threatened to kill him and tried to enlist him into the Russian army. Well, despite the bleak circumstances, he and his family prayed for his release. And after a number of days, the soldiers inexplicably released him. Inexplicably, of course, if you don't know the power of prayer, or I should say the power 
of the one to whom we pray. They released him on one of um, uh, along with one of their comrades orders. Still, the soldiers continued to keep his house under surveillance. So the family fled to Poland, where they continued to assist church members and Ukrainian refugees. Well, other fellow Christian ministers, priests and their followers weren't as fortunate with reports of many being tortured and killed by their captors. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about what it's like in Ukraine for some of the church workers, pastors, leaders who remain there. One said in occupied territory, we still have Christians uh, there, and it's very tough to be an evangelical Christian in occupied territory because they're hunting all the ministers, and they took our building our milit- for a military base, Badu said while speaking uh, on a panel with the International Religious Freedom Summit, a meeting of lawmakers and human rights advocates in Washington, D.C., who are focusing their attention on the impact this is having on the church, the Bible belt of uh, Eastern Europe, if you will. Well, Badiou, his harrowing experience was just one of the countless personal accounts of religious and ethnic persecution spotlighted last week at the annual summit. It's a two day gathering. It's taken place annually for the past three years. It was organized by Sam Brownback, the former Kansas governor who served as President Trump's ambassador at large for religious freedom and Katrina Lantos Sweet the daughter of the late Representative Tom Lantos of California, the only Holocaust survivor to serve in Congress and a longtime champion of human rights. Religious freedom is under a growing threat by China, Russia and other totalitarian regimes. Activists, officials and lawmakers at the summit warned as they work to confront and expose religious persecution around the globe. A prominent Uyghur activist urged more action to stop the Chinese government's genocide against her people, a Muslim ethnic minority in northwestern China. In 2021, President Biden formally declared China's treatment of Uyghur people as genocide, responsible for attempting to decimate the population through mass detention and forced sterilization. A lifetime pro-democracy advocate, Abbas, left Uh, The Uyghur Autonomous Region in China came to the United States to study at Washington State University in 89. She continued her human rights advocacy, became a broadcaster for Radio Free Asia's Uyghur service, later testified before Congress about Beijing Uyghur forced labor camps. After she appeared on the panel uh, in 2018, the conservative Hudson Institute um, Abbas sister and aunt who were uh, living in Jingjiang disappeared from their homes Since their disappearance, uh, the Chinese government has confirmed that her sister is being held in a prison inside China on alleged terrorism charges. Less information is known about her aunt. And these are just some examples of what's uh, what's happening. In gripping testimony, Tassi Gata, the director of Grace and Light, uh, she's a Nigerian. Another leading summit event focused on the ongoing slaughter of Nigerian Christians by Muslim militants in Boko Haram, one of the world's deadliest Islamist militant groups that became known worldwide after its members kidnapped the 276 schoolgirls back in 2017. In gripping testimony, Tassi Gata, the director of Grace and Light International, the non-denomination Christian ministry in Nigeria, described her abduction in January of 2020 by Boko Haram militants who threatened to rape her, but ultimately let her go after three days. She was more fortunate than many others. I don't know where the courage came from because I was very scared, she recounted. I told them I was a Christian and to die would bring me much peace. Nigeria is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian, even though 
Christians make up nearly half of Nigeria's population of 200 million, according to leading religious freedom organizations. Well, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and other leading human rights organizations ardently uh, embrace the, uh, the notion that this is a concern for the whole world. There were remarks from various parts of the world, individuals who were the subject of persecution and those who are there to support those who struggle and urging all to pray and be mindful of the persecution of the church. Well, another news, Oregon has become America's first death tourism destination where terminally ill people from Texas and other states that have outlawed assisted suicide have started traveling to get their hands on a deadly cocktail of drugs to end their lives. In the liberal bastion, at least one clinic has started receiving out-of-staters who have less than six months to live and meet the uh, the other strict requirements of the state's so-called death with dignity law. Dr. Nicholas uh, Gideon, um, the director of End of Life Choices Oregon, recently told a panel that he was advising terminally ill non-residents on traveling to Oregon to end their lives despite a legal gray area. So in addition to being... A, a place that Oregon would like to be identified as the place to come for an abortion. We're now also considered uh, one of the most um, prominent places for death tourism. Out-of-state residents have to be able to spend at least 15 days in Oregon to process the paperwork, which requires sign-offs from two doctors and witnesses before administering the fatal dose themselves, according to the clinic. U.S. officials announced on Saturday afternoon that the military has downed the suspected Chinese spy balloon that was spotted days earlier, hovering over sensitive military facilities in Montana, disrupting the Biden administration's recent effort to cool tensions with Beijing. The suspected surveillance aircraft was downed off the Carolina coast, the Associated Press reported, and an operation is currently underway to recover the resulting debris that's spread over several miles. Television footage taken on Saturday afternoon showed a small explosion off the Carolina coast and fighter jets could be seen canvassing the area. The AP reported the FAA closed the airspace around the balloon Saturday morning and the Coast Guard warned local mariners to keep their distance. The Pentagon first became aware of the balloon on Saturday, January 28th, when it entered U.S. airspace, but decided not to publicize the incursion so as not to jeopardize Secretary of State Blinken's forthcoming trip to Beijing. After the balloon began generating national media attention, however, the State Department opted to postpone the trip, though that decision wasn't made until Friday, hours before Blinken was set to depart. Military officials justified their failure to immediately shoot down the balloon on the grounds that uh, the resulting debris could have harmed civilian or civilians rather, or property. Civilians first spotted the balloon on Wednesday, making its way over a military base outside Billings, Montana, that houses intercontinental ballistic missiles. Chinese officials insist the balloon was a civilian research craft that was blown off course, though the Pentagon rejected that explanation during a Friday press conference. In fact, it was proven to have been navigable. We know that it's a surveillance balloon, the Pentagon press secretary said, and the use of the word balloon might be somewhat misleading in terms of its capability. Asked about the craft earlier on Saturday, the president said, we're going to take care of it, end quote. In a Saturday morning statement, the Chinese government brushed off the cancellation of Blinken's visit, which, by the way, has been rescheduled. In actuality, the U.S. and China have never announced any visits. The U.S. making any such announcement is their own business, and we respect that, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said. Blinken told reporters that he told his counterpart in Beijing during a phone call that the balloon's entrance into U.S. airspace, which spanned about a week, 
an irresponsible act and that China's decision to take this action on the eve of my visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have. Those discussions will, in fact, uh, resume According to reports, well, the remains of the Chinese spy flight shot down by the U.S. over the Atlantic Ocean this past weekend is heading to an FBI processing lab in Quantico, Virginia. According to senior U.S. officials, the balloon uh, remnants are set to be analyzed in the coming days. Well, the possible Chinese spy balloon debris has been spotted on the coast of uh, South Carolina and police are asking area residents to report other possible sightings. The news comes as China admitted Monday that a second balloon spotted over Latin America is theirs, alleging uh, that the aircraft is civilian in nature and shifted off course because of weather and its limited self-steering capability, end quote. With regard to the balloon over Latin America, it's been verified that the unmanned airship is from China of civilian nature and used for flight tests. Well, China's uh, foreign ministry spokesperson Mao Ning on uh, told reporters on Monday, affected by the weather and with limited self-steering capability, the airship deviated from its planned course and entered into airspace of Latin America and the Caribbean. Well, congressional leaders um, also poised to receive a top-level briefing on the intelligence gathered from the suspected spy balloon, which was uh, said to be carrying sensors and surveillance equipment, as well as President Joe Biden's decision to shoot it down. Republicans on Capitol Hill have demanded a closer look at the president's decision making throughout the week. Some saying that it's like tackling the quarterback once the game has ended. It saw a Chinese spy balloon cross the entire continental U.S. before being shot down. The administration has argued that the U.S. gained significant intelligence on the craft by allowing it to transit the United States. But many are arguing it's the other way around. The Chinese communist government was able to garner significant information before it was shot down. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Dr. Wendy Flint, author of School Boards, A Call to Action, a great training manual for those who are called and those who just want to uh, address the concerns that are growing all across the, the country. Well, the Democratic National Committee, they have voted on Saturday to overhaul the party's primary process, um, ditching Iowa and New Hampshire as first stops. Well, citing the need to better reflect the growing diversity of the Democratic Party, the committee say the presidential primary circuit will now begin in South Carolina, followed by New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia and Michigan. The Democratic Party chair of the South Carolina, Trav Robertson, applauded the move, hailing the economic and political impact that being first in the country cannot be understated or undersold, he told the, the state, which is a publication. The president of the United States of America has placed a great deal of belief and faith in our people, and we're going to take that responsibility very seriously. Now, apart from John Kerry, in uh, every Democratic candidate that has uh, won South Carolina in the uh, primary since 1992 has gone on to become the party's nominee. This is a significant effort to make the presidential primary nominating process more reflective of the diversity of this country and to have issues that will determine the outcome of the November election, part of the early process. Now, it's interesting that it, this should matter. Everyone casts one vote, each state votes, and those uh, together will determine who the nominee will ultimately be. But sadly, in our system, it does matter who goes first and the influence they wield because of how it's covered. Well, the shift which President Joe Biden favored has caused a rift amongst New Hampshire Democrats who took pride in their state as an early stop for presidential candidates. 
Uh, They could say June. They could uh, say next week. They could say in five years. But it's not going to matter. The former Democratic governor of New Hampshire, John Lynch, noted in a letter to President Biden about the opposition to the calendar change. It's like asking New York to move the Statue of Liberty from New York to Florida. I mean, that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen that we're going to change state law. Hmm. Well, the DNC has announced it will reexamine the ordering of state primaries every four years. The Republican Party has remained committed to preserving the current primary schedule. New Hampshire has until the 3rd of June of this year to comply with the overhaul and face potential penalties, including limiting the number of delegates the state sends to the national convention. Let the games begin. Well, mass devastation, more than 1,300, and that number significantly higher now. Dead as a terrifying 7.8 magnitude earthquake leveled buildings in Turkey and Syria. Forces in the works, the U.S. economy could see the second chapter in a pandemic price surge. And collecting sensitive information, experts say the Chinese spy balloon likely sent extensive intelligence to China. Trading Barb's former governor Chris Christie slammed former President Trump as the only man to lose to Biden outside Delaware after uh, Trump called him sloppy. This, uh, these are two grown men, leaders in our country. Okay, DHS secretary is being blasted. Representative Biggs charged that our country cannot go another two years with Secretary Mayorkas in charge of the border. As you might recall, there are impeachment efforts in the uh, in the making hunter biden's former business associate has uh, raked in over five hundred thousand dollars from a pro-biden super PAC and morning news and that's spelled m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g cnn's morning show struggles to have the new boss attention according to insiders the president failed that's what senator tom cotton says the spy balloon morphed into a trial balloon testing president biden's strength and resolve I feel enraged. A former Levi's executive blasted the New York Times over an apparent flip on school closures, suggesting he's not resonating. NBC's Chuck Todd asked Pete Buttigieg why President Biden's accomplishments aren't being celebrated by the public. The Associated Press added an entry to its style guide directing journalists to put their term crisis pregnancy center in scare quotes and to use anti-abortion center instead to convey that the center's uh, general aim is to prevent abortions. The AP added this entry between November 20th and the 27th of last year, according to the Daily Signal search uh, of the Wayback Machine. The guide describes the centers as set up to divert or discourage women from having abortions and warns writers against potentially misleading terms like pregnancy resource centers or pregnancy counseling centers. If using the term anti-abortion center, explain later that these often are known as crisis pregnancy centers with quotation marks and that their aim is to dissuade people from getting an abortion, the style guide states. Now, there's no question that they certainly want to discourage women from terminating the lives of their children in utero. But the suggestion here is that um, they are some nefarious organization that lying behind that um, that goal is something That is dangerous and damaging to women who might go there. It's disgraceful that so-called journalistic professionals succumb to pro-abortion political activists to do their bidding. So writes Thomas Glessner, president of the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. His organization won an important 2018 Supreme Court case against then-California Attorney General 
Xavier Vicara, who applied state law forcing pregnancy centers to post information about nearby abortion facilities. If they actually cared about integrity, they would know that pregnancy centers seek to help women who are facing unplanned pregnancies with material and emotional support. Many centers also provide medical services for free. Well, the AP didn't respond to requests to comment about when exactly it adopted this guidance and how it would um, respond to criticism about it. The AP's pregnancy center definition follows at least 80 attacks against PRCs since the leak of the Supreme Court's draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade in early May. According to Catholic Vote Tracker, abortion advocates have firebombed and spray painted the centers, which provide free medical and financial support to pregnant and new mothers with pro-abortion and anarchist messages, threats and symbols. These centers are the backbone of the pro-life movement, serving as a boots-on-the-ground representative of a movement that cares deeply for both mom and baby, Glessner points out. It's a disgrace that the media have taken such an active stance against these centers, especially at a time in our history when women really need help, acknowledgement, and someone to lean on during a difficult time. Well, the Associated Press is the most common style book among journalists and new out news outlets on the left and right, including the Daily Signal. The Daily Signal doesn't depart from AP style when the style guide adopts partisan messaging on abortion, transgender identity, and other issues. However, Planned Parenthood advocates, uh, advocates rather, of Nebraska appeared to celebrate the AP style change, as I'm certain did many other pro-abortion organizations. Democratic politicians have condemned pregnancy centers despite the rash of violence these centers, these organizations have faced. Senator Elizabeth Warren called it a crackdown on pro-life pregnancy resource centers. My guess is she's never been to one. She doesn't know precisely what they do and don't do. She simply accepted the characterization, the caricature, if you will, the mischaracterization of what these centers do with money donated by people who genuinely care. There's no profit in it. Well, forces in the works, the U.S. economy could see a second chapter in a pandemic price surge and wildly frustrating break-ins in Asheville, North Carolina, saw a 200 percent monthly surge in January amid a violent crime spike in the Democrat-run tourist town that's hemorrhaged police officers in recent years. The Asheville Police Department, which serves a town of approximately 90,000 people, responded to 41 break-ins throughout 2022 and has already fielded 11 reports of break-ins in 2023 as of February 1st. President Biden knew about the Chinese balloon an entire week before he took it down. He tried to take the blame off his uh, delayed response and put put it on the Pentagon, claiming it on, on Wednesday. He ordered them to shoot the balloon down. However, it was the Pentagon who decided it was best to wait. Yet U.S. officials were reportedly notified of the Chinese balloon back on January 28th, eight days before action was taken. The Chinese foreign ministry claimed the U.S. decision to shoot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon on Saturday was an overreaction. The U.S. military downed the surveillance balloon off the Carolina coast Saturday, days after it was seen hovering over sensitive military facilities in Montana. Chinese officials confirmed Friday that the balloon is indeed theirs, but claimed it's a civilian airship used for weather research. Hmm. Because they want to know what the weather's going to be like over North Carolina on a particular day. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. Also, a reminder, coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Dr. Wendy Flint. 
Her book, School Boards, A Call to Action. Are you thinking about it? Do you know someone who's pondering the idea? Do you feel called to run for the school board? This is a great training resource. She's actually done it, and we'll talk with her about that in the second hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Dr. Wendy Flint. She's the author of School Boards, A Call to Action. She didn't just write it. She actually lived it out and has trained others who have successfully made it onto school boards all across the country. That's coming up. In the five o'clock hour, well, a pair of polls suggest Americans don't want either Biden or Trump, but give a slight edge to Trump in a hypothetical race. Not many voters are looking forward to a potential rematch between the former and current president, according to a survey released Sunday, even as both men ready their campaigns for a possible collision course. More Republicans than Democrats say their party should nominate someone else for the 2024 race. And uh, then believe it should be Trump or Biden. Fifty eight percent of Democrats support the idea of nominating someone other than Biden. And forty nine percent of Republicans want their nominee to be a figure other than Trump. In a hypothetical rematch, Trump held a forty eight percent to forty five percent advantage over President Biden. Four in 10 Americans say they've gotten worse off financially since Joe Biden became president. The most in ABC News, Washington Post polls dating back. 37 years. Political fallout includes poor performance ratings for Biden and a tight hypothetical Biden-Trump rematch next year. The Biden administration is still looking to regulate gas stoves on again, off again, on again. In the memo dated October 25th of last year, Richard Trumpka Jr., whom the president appointed to serve on the five-person Consumer Product Safety Commission, wrote to a fellow commissioner that there was sufficient evidence for the agency to move forward with a notice of proposed rulemaking to ban gas stoves in the near future. Trumpka's internal memo shows that a plan to restrict gas stoves were set in motion months earlier than previously reported. It also cast doubts on comments made recently by Trumpka and other administration officials that such a ban would not be considered. The Wall Street Journal reported that after criticism, the CPSC chairman rejected the idea and White House officials said they didn't support banning gas stoves. Then why has the Energy Department proposed new efficiency standards that would ban the sale of most gas stoves currently on the market? Well, the department estimates the proposed rule would reduce energy use by a mere 3.4 percent from the status quo and consumers on average would save twenty one dollars and eighty nine cents over a cooktop lifetime. That's over the entire lifetime of the cooktop. 20 of the 21 um, gas stove tops models that Energy Department tested wouldn't comply with its proposed standards. Manufacturers would have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars redesigning stoves if they bother. An off-duty NYPD police officer was shot while buying a car and is in critical condition. Last report, he is brain dead. A five-year veteran of the New York police is fighting for his life after being shot Saturday night during a robbery. The officer who was off-duty attempted to buy a car on Ruby Street in Brooklyn after the details of the purchase were arranged on social media. When the officer arrived, the suspect immediately displayed a gun and announced the robbery. Gunfire was exchanged. The officer was hit and taken to the hospital where he is in critical condition. Minnesota is considering a bill to become a trans-refuge state. Minnesota lawmakers are considering a bill that would establish the state as a trans-refuge for children who are seeking transgender medical procedures, but who may be blocked by laws in other states, out of concern that we don't know the long-term impact 
I just added that editorial part. The legislation was introduced by Representative Leah Fink of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. The bill is designed to provide life-altering sex change procedures to minors who live in states that restrict gender-affirming care, which is just the opposite of affirming one's gender. The DNC has changed its primary calendar, abandoning Iowa and New Hampshire. And Russia and Iran are looking to rebuild a drone facility, rather build a drone facility in Russia. The Wall Street Journal reports that Moscow and Tehran are moving ahead with plans to build a new factory in Russia that could make at least 6,000 Iranian-designed drones for the war in Ukraine. The latest sign of deepening cooperation between the two nations, according to officials from a country aligned with the U.S., As part of their emerging military alliance, the officials said a high level of Iranian delegation flew to Russia in early January to visit the uh, planned site for the factory and hammer out details to get the uh, project up and running. The two countries are aiming to build a faster drone that could pose new challenges for Ukrainian air defenses. Times of Israel reports that last month the Biden administration said that Iran's sale of lethal drones to Russia for use in its ongoing invasion of Ukraine meant the country may be contributing to widespread war crimes. Russia has been slamming the uh, drones into Ukrainian energy infrastructure and other civilian targets. President Biden is planning to give Ukraine $2.2 billion in military technology. The White House authorized the uh, military aid package to Ukraine that includes funds to purchase the ground-launched smaller-diameter bomb uh, rockets, the GLSDB, sophisticated new weaponry with a range of nearly 100 miles. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Patrick Ryder noted the new weaponry would help the Ukrainian military conduct operations in defense of their country and to take back their sovereign territory in Russian-occupied areas. President Biden has faced increasing pressure to ratchet up support for Ukraine and transfer increasingly advanced weapons, while at the same time, some are warning that we do not have sufficient munitions should the United States itself find itself in a military conflict. New York City finally removed illegal migrants who refused to leave a high-end hotel. A standoff in New York City between police and Protesters outside the Watson Hotel who demanded that single male illegal immigrants be allowed to remain for free. And the $450 per night hotel ended on Wednesday night after police bust out those uh, individuals remaining outside the hotel in a makeshift encampment. Police told the uh, immigrants that they needed to leave with around 30 migrants being bussed away from the Manhattan Hotel. City uh, sanitation workers came shortly after the area was vacated to clean up the sidewalks. The city has been emptying uh, its coffers to give these uh, individuals free meals, fancy hotel rooms that previously cost upwards of three to four hundred and fifty dollars per night. And the migrants responded by trashing the neighborhood, refusing to clear out once new housing was arranged. And many in the community were fuming over this and growing fed up with the situation. As mentioned earlier in the program, a massive 7.7 magnitude earthquake struck southern Turkey with aftershocks felt uh, aftershocks rather felt in multiple countries. What does the law say about student loans? The former representative Buck McKeon, John Klein and John Boehner, a Republican out of Ohio, filed an amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday. The former lawmakers who crafted the 2003 Heroes Act wrote to make clear that Congress never intended anything like the student loan cancellation effort underway here. They contend that the law is being misused and distorted to justify the president's effort to radically change the student loan system. They further note the original purpose of the legislation was to reply, 
uh, to repay, rather, the brave Americans who endured great personal hardship in service to their country with a modest protection against the distractions of administrative obligations arising from their student loans. The law was never intended to be a pretext to cancel billions in student loan debt to absolve borrowers who haven't uh, suffered hardship from the responsibilities they took on as borrowers. The brief uh, pulls no punches regarding the administration's abuse of the legislation, asserting, as they knew firsthand, Congress did not and surely could not have ever expected the act to be misused and distorted by the department in the policy now before this court. It later added, as the past 20 years of consistent understanding prove, Congress only ever understood the act as a limited administrative tool to be used in narrow circumstances. Hopefully, this spells... uh, an end to the student loan cancellation gambit, saying saving taxpayers billions. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, the conversation with Dr. Wendy Flint, her book, School Boards, A Call to Action. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. Wendy Flint, author of School Boards, A Call to Action. It's an updated version that tells a bit of her story, having run for the school board and served as an education representative for the people for a, a number of years in the state of Washington. That's coming up in our next in our next break. Well, Project Veritas released part two of its Pfizer report, where an executive admits the vax affects women's cycles. And the Treasury Department expanded the definition of SUVs eligible for electric vehicle tax credit, Whatever happened to Love Wins, Canadian school banning um, Valentine's Day in order to be more inclusive? And in a bit of satire, China assures warships heading to Taiwan are just meteorological warships. Nothing to see here, folks. On this day in history, 1778, during the American Revolutionary War, the United States wins official recognition and military support from France with the signing of a Treaty of Alliance in Paris. 1895, Babe Ruth, legendary star of the New York Yankees, is born in Baltimore. 1911, Ron Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, is born in Tampico, Illinois. 1933, on this day in history, the 20th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the so-called lame duck amendment, is proclaimed in effect by Secretary of State Henry Stimson. 1952, Britain's King George VI, 56, dies And Sandingham House in Norfolk, England, he is uh, succeeded as a monarch by his 25-year-old elder daughter, who would become Queen Elizabeth II. 1968, the Winter Olympic Games are opened in Grenoble, France, by French President Charles de Gaulle. 1987, Wall Street Journal reporter Gerald Sieb is released after being detained six days by Iran. Accused of being a spy for Israel, Iran says the detention was the result of a misunderstanding. On this day in history, 1998, Bill Clinton signs a bill changing the name of Washington National Airport to Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. 2000, Hillary Clinton launches her candidacy for the U.S. Senate. On this day in history, 2008, the Bush White House defends the use of the interrogation technique known as waterboarding, saying it was uh, legal, not torture, as critics argued, and has saved American lives. 2009, key senators in the White House reach a tentative agreement on an economic stimulus measure at the heart of President Barack Obama's recovery plan. Also in 2009, federal health officials say Peanut Corporation of America, a Georgia peanut processor, knowingly shipped salmonella-laced products as far back as 2007 
And that was in 2009. On this day in history, 2014, Jay Leno says goodbye to NBC's The Tonight Show for the second time, making way for Jimmy Fallon to take over as host. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, SpaceX's big new rocket blasts off from the Kennedy Space Center on its first test flight carrying a red sports car en route that can well, that would take it to the, uh, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. I don't know why it was carrying a red sports car, but... There you have it. President Biden's economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, discussed inflation, falling gas prices, job growth and so on. As the president is facing a series of domestic and foreign policy crises since he declared the State of the Union to be strong during his most recent address to Congress 11 months ago. Coming up tomorrow is latest is next. We are stronger today than we were a year ago, the president concluded in his first State of the Union address at the U.S. Capitol on the 1st of March last year, and we will be stronger a year from now than we are today. Since the president's remarks, the nation has struggled to suppress the growth of migrant surge at the southern border with Mexico. Gasoline prices hit an all-time record and inflation reached a 40-year high. Continuing supply chain issues led to a nationwide shortage of baby formula. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has escalated with no end in sight, and the president has faced pressure over his mishandling of classified documents when he served as vice president. And while the president's approval ratings has increased from 40.6 percent to 43.9 percent since his last State of the Union, his approval dropped to a measly 36.8 percent, its lowest level in July of last year, according to an average of polling data compiled by Real Clear Politics. His approval rating remains lower than every recent president, including or rather excluding President Donald Trump, whose ratings uh, sat at 41 percent at their uh, at this point in his presidency. If President Biden is looking for an opportunity to alter a mostly static approval rating, the State of the Union is the next chance. So says the director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion. Um, Biden needs to flip public uh, sentiment about the strength of the union and find middle ground to offset many Americans who view the political parties as extreme. Both of them. Well, the most recent crisis to hit the White House has been the revelation that a Chinese spy balloon was flying across the U.S. Many are speculating whether or not the president will address it and how much information he'll share if he does. And while Biden and the defense secretary, Lord Austin, explained the delayed response was to protect Americans who may have been harmed were the balloon to fall on land, Republican lawmakers blasted the administration for being too weak. The president has also been heavily criticized for a a scandal revolving around how t- he mishandled classified documents. And it turns out there are others who have done the same. The White House has stated that it has been transparent about the uh, search for the documents, but critics have accused the president of purposely staying quiet on the scandal until after the 2022 midterm election and purposely staying out of the headlines. In addition, the border crisis over the last year has sparked calls for the president to take more aggressive action And some Republicans have supported moving forward with the resolution to impeach his Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. The Department of Homeland Security states the purpose of its secretary is to secure and manage our borders. You have failed to do this job. Additionally, you have shown a complete ineptitude and unwillingness to fix the problem. According to the Customs and Border Protection, migrants encounters in December surpassed 250,000 for the first time on record. 
In addition, about 300,000 evaded uh, border agencies in less than four months compared to the 600,000 reported last year. And border encounters uh, have already hit a record high in fiscal year 2023. We're less than a month and a half into the year. The administration has also grappled with a baby formula shortage that has wreaked um, chaos on parents across the country. After receiving criticism about the administration's response uh, to the crisis, which led to empty shelves in stores nationwide, the president ordered various agencies to devote resources to addressing the supply chain issues, and the White House unveiled Operation Fly Formula. And inflation has remained a key concern of Americans since the president's last State of the Union speech. In June, months after the address, inflation surged 9.1 percent year over year, the fastest uptick of its kind since 1981. Rising consumer prices have impacted nearly every aspect of American lives and uh, energy and food and shelter, apparel and everyday goods are on that list. While inflation has fallen below 7 percent, it remains uh, far higher than government targets and the Federal Reserve has continued to um, raise interest rates, which could have negative reverberations throughout the U.S. economy. Energy prices like heating and gasoline costs have particularly put a strain on American families. Pump prices increased to past $5 per gallon in mid-June. They're down a little right now, hitting their highest levels ever recorded before falling again, but currently remain 46% higher than when Biden took office. Part of the pressure on energy costs have come as a result of Russia's um, invasion in Ukraine. Well, experts uh, have forecast that um, the conflict will continue to rage throughout 2023, which may be the bloodiest year of war, likely enforcing or rather forcing the president to make additional decisions on how much support he will give uh, to Ukraine, while at the same time guaranteeing that the United States, should it find itself in a conflict with China or some other nation or sucked into this conflict, is sufficiently prepared for self-defense. There's a lot going on and the president will deliver his speech. It may be a rousing and inspiring address. It may be disappointing and confirm what some in his own party are suggesting that he shouldn't run again. Whatever it ends up being, the State of the Union will be delivered by President Biden, his second uh, in office, or is it his third? Um, That will be tomorrow night. We'll remind you of the time tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest ran for school board as a conservative Christian in 1985. She won with a very strategic campaign and the favor of God, but not without persecution against her and her family. And it was intense. Well, in 1988, she wrote the book School Boards, A Call to Action. It's the first edition. She traveled 44 states giving school board workshops and speaking in churches. It's estimated that some 2,000 parents and citizens won their elections as a result. And in this second edition, we'll be talking about in just a moment, she teaches parents the importance of and power of doing spiritual warfare in their school districts. One of the thing the things that the isolation following the pandemic did was it gave parents an opportunity to see what's actually going on in classrooms, and they have uh, become much more activist about 
what they see. She's updated her school board's uh, book, A Call to Action, written from a Christian mother's perspective. Um, she overcame the fear and, and provides some equipping uh, with tools and tactics needed for an effective campaign for those who would like to, uh, to step into that calling. Well, Dr. Wendy Flint joins us now to talk about this great resource. I hope you'll um, plan to put in your hands. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. I'm so happy to connect with you. I've been a professor for years. Well, thank you. You are a professor at George Fox, and you are an Oregonian now, but you originally served as president of the board in Evergreen School District in Washington. Um, and uh, your experience is included in this second edition of the book, School Boards, A Call to Action. Yes. Um, I raised our children. My husband and I raised our children. Uh, we were over there for about 26 years, involved in that district and very much involved in the schools. Uh, and uh, now we're over in Sherwood, Oregon. One of the things I've appreciated is watching parents um, wake up to what's happening in their school districts, in their schools, and confronting school boards with, um, this is not what we signed up for. This is not what our tax dollars were intended for. And they're confronting school districts, and there's quite a bit of contention. Can you tell us a little bit about what the situation was like in 85 when you, as a a conservative, decided, I'm going to step into um, a campaign and seek a role in a school board? Well, what's interesting is, as a young mother, I don't think I politically had any definition of myself. Um, I was just involved in schools and cared about my kids Mm -hmm. and and had moral values. So when I chose to run, um, it was because of concern, uh, you know, for the curriculum, for what my children were being exposed to, and for the, because of the arrogance of the school board that was not listening to the parents. After I made that decision to run with a supportive parent, I discovered that the press um, back then, be the media today, um, and the teachers' union, when they found out I had conservative point of view and that I was a Christian, um, the attack became very intense. I had no idea the hatred um, toward conservatives and Christians. And so there was a lot of exaggeration, mm-hmm. false accusations, and persecution. It wasn't easy, but God was with me. Well, let, let me ask you about that, because I think for a lot of parents, they would have to be called by God himself before they would enter into <laughs> that kind of conflict. For you, what, what compelled you? Was there a specific call? Was it driven by your concern and a sense of responsibility for your children, the school district, and your, and your community? The, I think the call came when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I've called you the leadership, and I was very surprised because I was a young mom and I somehow didn't visualize that, but he said, there's a calling on your life for leadership. And then when I was invited to do this, and I, uh, would you run? And I prayed with my husband. Um, you know, we, we were just weighing it back and forth. Was I really qualified? Should I do this? And amazingly, through prayer, people started calling me on the phone or sending me messages. Even one mother knocked on my door and said, the Lord said, that, uh, come talk to you and encourage you. Uh, another group said we've been praying for years for God to send someone to run for this school board, and we think you're the one. So he sent a lot of messages. I had doubts and fears, but he sent a lot of confirming messages and scriptures. I've called you to do this, and I'm going to be with you. I want you to do this. Now, some people are just strong patriots, angry, um, and they are determined uh, to win I wasn't one of those um, strong people at the time. I, I needed to lean entirely on the Lord. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people are frustrated by what they're seeing and want to do something that's effective. A lot of people feel that they're called, but they may question whether or not they're qualified. How do you address that? Do you have to have a certain set of credentials before you should consider stepping into and uh, holding accountable the decision makers in uh, public education across the states of Oregon and, and Washington? There absolutely is no requirement except in some states, basic, you know, you need to read and write. There's no educational requirements, no experience. It has been set up uh, to be run by local citizens Mm -hmm. and parents. It never was intended for educated professionals, even though a lot of educational professionals do run for school board. It was set up to be a local a decision-making body where parents would have a voice. It was, you know, common law in the original days, and parents were very much involved. So there are no real qualifications, but, you know, basically I went to the library and started looking at education law. Um, I got a book of resolutions from the district and started reading what the resolutions were, Um, And I just, you know, started uh, studying and talking to people of what it would take to make decisions on the board. Once you're on the board, you get all the materials, you get all the training, um, you go to workshops, you work with your colleagues. And so you pick it up pretty quickly what the role and responsibility is. And once you're elected, then you, you basically have the responsibility of reviewing um, all the materials or budgets and curriculum that come to you um, and vote on that. So a majority controlled board uh, has the majority decision of what's going to be in that district, especially when it is regard to academics and curriculum. In the introduction of your book, School Boards, A Call to Action, you quote the what's now become the infamous statement by Virginia Governor at the time, Virginia Governor McAuliffe, who uh, who made the point that, you know, parents really um, have no role to play when it comes to education. I think there's a, a, a back and forth as to what is the role of parents, what's the role of educators. And in the local um, school districts, uh, is it true that parents do have authority? Is it true that parents should pursue input? And let me ask you, to, because you've been in that arena, let me ask you to comment on Governor McCullough's uh, statement during his debate in Alexandria saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Your thoughts on the role of parents in education in general and the role of school boards in helping to shape the direction that education goes? Really good question. I'm glad you asked it. It, it infuriates me when they say that. And, of course, they're saying it uh, with the point of view as if we could go into a classroom and tell people what to teach. Of course, teachers are trained, educated, My daughter has been a teacher for over 20 years um, in the public school system, and um, I would never tell her how to teach her subjects, but I can evaluate um, whether the content as a board member is truly reflecting the history of our nation, um, is is it uh, what are the reading scores of our students, do we need to look at the curriculum um, to make the scores go up? You know, we have a, we are responsible according to law when we're on a school board to be accountable not only for the quality of the curriculum, it says that in the law, but we're accountable uh, to the values and morals that the community is asking for uh, when they come uh, and talk to us. So I, when, what we're saying is parents have a right 
to be concerned about what is being taught their children when they see it at home or online during COVID. And they have a right to go through the process of instructional committees where there's protests or go to the board, appeal to the board, uh, to go single or in groups um, and present their concerns. And the school board has the choice whether to listen or not. And when they don't listen to the local input of parents who do have a right to evaluate their children's uh, education and materials and ensure its quality, um, the board doesn't respond, then the only solution is to replace the board members. And, And that's not that easy, but if you get organized, it can be done and get established for years to come. So it it isn't just directly telling the teacher what to teach. We have, uh, we pay the taxes. Those are our children. We're entrusting them to those teachers and those administrators. And the law allows us to have input into that. And and there's a lot of laws stated in my book, by the way, where there's been court cases and the parents win. Yes, yes. Once again, we're talking about school boards, a call to action written by my guest, Wendy Flint. Uh, Dr. Flint is a professor at uh, George Fox University. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Flint. She's an author and speaker, has over 35 years experience in the business sector, K through 12 and higher education. She's a former president of the board of an evergreen school district in Washington. Dr. Flint authored the first edition of School Boards, A Call to Action in 1988 and traveled to 44 states from 88 to 90, giving school board election workshops and making appearances on radio and television stations. Over 2,000 citizens have won their elections with Dr. Flint's book and her training. That book is now updated and available for you in your school district or perhaps for you as an individual. If you sense a calling of God to run for the school board or if you are um, outraged and dissatisfied with what's happening and you're considering making such a move, this is a great, um, great resource. How would you describe um, the book School Boards, A Call to Action? Is it a workbook? Is it a, a campaign manual? How would you describe it? I definitely call it a training manual. Uh, It gives you every uh, detail you need to organize a campaign uh, that has worked over and over again, the basic skills for that, Um, because some people don't know, you know, what they should do. It's interesting in some of the um, elections, they have them off season, like not during November. It might be in April or Mm -hmm. May. The turnout can be very low. So your ability to win a school board election with a mailing, with phone calls, with getting out the vote, your ability to win and be successful is very, very high. What's different about this book this time is that when I wrote the first edition and I was on the road training from state to state, um, it was mostly technical um, about how the questions to ask the superintendent, um, how you can influence legislation and how to run your campaign. But what it didn't have was the spiritual warfare that uh, my campaign manager and I did during this campaign and just really leaning on the Lord, not only during the campaign, but after making decisions on the board and praying for the children of the district. And so my personal testimony of what I went through, my children went through, the victories that God gave us wasn't in the first book. But this time, you know, I'm 73 years old. I have six grandchildren in college. 
Um, and, um, you know, the Lord called me to rewrite the book again, and this time I wanted to make sure I left the message uh, to parents who were doing this as Christians that they understood the major difference that prayer uh, can do in the schools, especially once you get into that leadership position. We often think about uh, legislators, city council member, county councilmen, people <clears throat> who are called to uh, our nation's capital. How significant is the school board in shaping, first of all, the, the young people who go through our public education system? But how significant is a position on the school board to impacting and influencing the direction of our communities? Well, there's so much legislation, resolutions that are written in the district level and then resolutions that are written at the state level. So when you're a board member, these resolutions steer the the district in the direction um, that you want to go. And we wrote a religious policy as soon as uh, we had a majority controlled board in the state of Washington required us to write one. And I was amazed at the opposition that came into the boardroom that from the ACLU and others that they didn't want children to even be allowed to pray over their food at the table in the cafeteria and that it would take away the rights of the other children sitting at the table. And and so the freedom of our children depends on these resolutions uh, that we write and the opposition um, you know, has very destructive ideas um, for our schools. And then once you're on the school board, you go to a legislative meeting and you vote on resolution that goes to the legislature that says the school board association in this state is telling you, legislators, this is what we want in schools. And it's very powerful lobbying group. And so as we increase in our numbers for wanting these values in schools, we start to influence the local um, association in our state. And I recall many times at many meetings where they have proposed to remove the American flag from the classrooms in America, and it never ends. They always want that flag out, and they want a United Nations flag or some education flag put in instead. And if it wasn't for the voice of board members stopping that, we wouldn't be seeing the American flag in the schools right now. They'd be telling legislators to remove that law and take that out. And then you actually eventually get to lobby at the federal level, which I got to do. And I can remember sitting, um, you know, in resenting to a congressman or woman um, my points of view, uh, what I wanted for schools. And I could be concerned about national legislation um, and sharing with them. And they loved having local board members mm -hmm. come and talk to them. They would rather hear us than a special interest group. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I feel that I am called to serve on a, a local school board or I'm considering that possibility, where do I begin? The first thing you would do is find out what district you're in and if that board seat is coming up for election. Um, and you can go to your election board uh, to look that up. Uh, go, you know, I think the uh, if you're a conservative, the Republican Party has people working on this, so they may have that information for you also um, in your area. Uh, unfortunately, I've been getting emails from people that are trying to go to the superintendent or the district office to get this information, and they're being blocked, or they're being told, no, you don't live in that district, and they did. They're trying to control who gets uh, elected, who even runs. So you definitely need to push beyond just talking to the district, unless you're in a small rural area where they may be a little bit more friendly. Um, and do go to your election board and do um, 
go to your uh, Republican Party, even though this is a nonpartisan seat, you want to go to people that are going to support you if you're a conservative. Um, and they will help give you the information of the seats that are coming up because you don't want to run against somebody that's already conservative on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to find out what seats are open, what are coming up, um, and then start to get some advice from people that are involved in elections uh, locally. I think for a lot of people who live in Oregon, who live in the Portland area, for example, that is extremely liberal. They might just assume it's not possible for me to successfully run for and earn a seat on the board. What do you say to those who um, are skeptical about the opportunity they might have if they do choose to run in uh, the more liberal parts of Oregon or for that matter, Washington? Right. Um, So I would say that it is the moderates that turn the vote and most moderate people, when they see the actual, um, extremism or or sexually explicit curriculum and things that are being forced on the children and you can get them educated, they will vote for you. They they just want decency as much as anyone else. They don't have an agenda. So I think the majority of citizens and parents don't have an agenda. When it comes to children in schools, they all agree. And that's what I found how I won my race is once we got the word out, once the truth got out, you know, there were people from all different groups uh, that were voting for us because it's, it's children and schools that we're talking about. So I just went to a meeting recently where uh, five districts were represented and they wanted a workshop and some parents had organized this. And there were several candidates from, from Beaverton, Hillsborough, Candy, Clackamas. I mean, they were from all over and they said, I'm running and I just need help and show me what to do. And here was a group of parents organizing this workshop and there were some board members there that were conservative already on the board and they were looking for people to run so their numbers could increase and they could make a difference um so i say do it you'll run the first time if you lose don't worry about it your name will get out there run again once you make a commitment and you have a calling um go for it i think the tide is turning in america i think people are fed up And I think that the number of people on our side is greater. We just have to get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a lack of leadership. And when there are people on the board who uh, don't consider those who express their concerns as pariah, I think we're going to find that there are a lot of people uh, who embrace uh, the same, more conservative uh, ideas. How can people acquire School Boards, A Call to Action, your book, that really is a training manual for those who want to run? It is on Amazon. You can uh, Google Dr. Wendy Flint books. I have several books out there um, or school boards, a call to action, but be sure to attach my name to it. There could be some books that are not uh, of the Christian direction. Um, So it is on Amazon and you can read more about me by just uh, going to wendyflint.com or drwendyflint.com. And I started a website called American School Boards and a Facebook page, American School Boards, because in Oregon in particular, with some other board members, we just want to get a little more organized and start to influence the Oregon School Board Association and get more members uh, elected in Oregon. So if they uh, go to that American School Boards, there'll be a place they can sign up and we'll start to organize. Well, I'd so appreciate, first of all, your commitment to serve as you did 
in the Evergreen School District and for helping to equip others who want to do the same, whether they feel that they are specifically called or just out of conviction and concern, have decided I'm going to pursue this. This is a great resource, and I would highly recommend anyone who's considering this or if you know someone who is, make sure they have a copy of School Board's A Call to Action. Dr. Flint, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. I appreciate this opportunity. The Lord said, Wendy, they're, they're, they they called you a right-wing radical, which I know now is just a mild accusation. Back then, today they're calling parents terrorists. You have to help them. And I said, okay, God. And um, I wrote the book again. And I, and I pray anyone wants to write me an email that's running, I will reply to the email. It's on my website. And I will pray for you. Mm, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Dr. Wendy Flint. She's a professor at George Fox. She's the author of School Boards, A Call to Action, an excellent resource. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may have noticed the He Gets Us campaign It's going to um, burst on the scene in earnest at Super Bowl. It's one of the ads, part of a billion-dollar campaign. Hobby Lobby's David Green and other Christian funders are backing a three-year effort to reintroduce people to Jesus. You might see the billboards. You might see the commercials. Jesus called huddles, too. He gets us. Jesus confronted racism with love. He gets us. Another says Jesus was a refugee. He gets us. And Jesus was sick of hypocrisy, too. He gets us. Well, the first time she saw an ad for He Gets Us, a national campaign devoted to redeeming the brand of Christianity's savior, Jennifer Quattlebaum had one thought in her mind. She's a self-described love more Christian and ordinary mom who works in marketing. Uh, She loved the message of the ad. It promoted the idea that Jesus understands contemporary issues from a grassroots perspective. But she wondered who was paying for the ads and what their agenda was. I mean, Jesus gets us, she said, but what group is behind them? And you really always have to be a bit um, skeptical may not be the right word, but it is important to find out whose message is it. And, uh, you know, who's um, directing attention, not just to him, but to whatever it is that. Um, that they want. Well, the first um, for the past 10 months, rather, the He Gets Us ads have shown up on billboards, on YouTube channels, television screens, most recently during NFL playoff games across the country, all spreading the message that Jesus understands the human condition. Well, the campaign is a project of the Servant Foundation. It's an Overland Park, Kansas nonprofit that does business as the signatory. Uh, But the donors backing the campaign have until recently remained anonymous. They didn't want the focus of attention on them. In early 2022, organizers only told Religion News Service that funding came from like-minded families who desire to see Jesus of the Bible represented in today's culture with the same relevance and impact he had 2,000 years ago. But in November, David Green, the billionaire co-founder of Hobby Lobby, told talk show host Glenn Beck, that his family was helping fund the ads. Green, who was on the program to discuss his new book on leadership, told Glenn Beck that his family and other families would be helping fund an effort to spread the word about Jesus. You're going to see it at the Super Bowl. He gets us, said Green. We're wanting to say, uh, we being a lot of people, that he gets us, he understands us, he loves who we hate. 
Uh, and I think we have to uh, let the, the public know and create a movement, end quote. Well, Jason Vanderground, who's president of Haven, a branding firm based in Grand Haven, Michigan, uh, that's working on the He Gets Us campaign, confirmed that the Greens are one of the major funders among a variety of donors and families who have gotten behind it. Donors to the project are all Christian, but come from a range of denominational backgrounds, says Vanderground. Salem Media is among those who support and are championing this effort. The Super Bowl ads alone will cost about $20 million, according to organizers, who originally described He Gets Us as the $100 million effort. Well, the goal is to invest about a billion dollars over the next three years, he said, and that's just the first phase, end quote. One of the ads that aired during the NFL playoffs was titled That Day and tells the story of an innocent man being executed. Jesus rejected resentment on the cross, the ad says. He gets us, all of us. Well, a billion-dollar three-year campaign would be on par with advertising budgets for major brands such as Kroger grocery stores, according to an associate professor of marketing at Belmont University in Nashville. This is a really remarkable ad spend for a religious organization or just a nonprofit in general. Uh, she worked on the Open Hearts, Open Minds, Open Doors campaign for the United Methodist Church. Religious-themed ads have been relatively rare at the Super Bowl. The Church of Scientology has run ads in the past. And in 2018, Toyota ran an ad that the message, We Are All One Team, featuring a rabbi, a priest, an imam, a saffron-robed monk headed to a football game, where they sat next to some nuns. Closer to the He Gets Us model was the Christian Broadcasting Network's $5 million national campaign to promote the book, a repackaged version of the Living Bible Translation with a catchy theme song sung by country legend Glenn Campbell. Well, Harding said that despite the cost, advertising at the Super Bowl makes sense for He Gets Us. Organizers want to reach a mass audience that's paying attention. Super Bowl ads have become part of the pageantry of the big game, sometimes more interesting than the game itself. There just aren't ways to reach an attentive, engaged audience that size anymore. Well, she also said that the anonymous, the anonymity rather, of the group behind the ad plays to the group's advantage. It would be easy to uh, for viewers to dismiss the ads coming from a faith-based organization or religious group. The He Gets Us ads wait until the end to mention Jesus and don't point to any specific church or denomination. That can be an advantage. It can also be a shortcoming. Well, that makes it even more powerful and hits the message home in a really compelling way, she says. I think it does make Jesus more relevant to today's audiences. Well, Jesus is relevant whether or not we make him so or not with a big, splashy ad campaign. But getting the message of Jesus into the ears and the eyes of those who are watching a big game, that's probably a good thing. Well, some viewers, including some evangelical Christians, are skeptical. Author and activist Jennifer Greenberg supports the idea of trying to reach those outside the faith and wants people to understand that Jesus gets them. But that's not the whole message of Christianity. Yes, Jesus can relate to you, she said. But what did Jesus come primarily to do? He came to die for our sins. That's not part of the he gets us message. Connecting emotionally with Jesus is great, she added, but that won't save your soul. I can look at Buddha and Sarah McLaughlin and Obama and I can find things in common with them, she says. But that doesn't mean they're going to save me. Well, Michael Cooper is an author and a missiologist, and he agrees. While Cooper is a fan of the ads saying they powerfully communicate the human side of Jesus, they leave out his divinity. I began to wonder, is this the Jesus I know? 
Well, Cooper and a colleague offer what he called a constructive critique of the campaign in an upcoming article for the Journal of the Evangelical Missiological Society. That article calls for clearer messaging about the divine nature of Jesus. He's not just a guy who gets us. This wasn't just a great teacher or preacher who was incarnated. He said this was God himself. Now, I understand the ads are designed to create curiosity and budge, uh, buzz rather, and perhaps an interest that will lead to a, a question or two in places where they can get biblical answers. But does it fall short? Well, I'm not entirely sure. My prayer is with so much money invested, with so many people seeing these ads over the next three years, from what I understand, I just pray that they are effective and not just making Jesus another pal, but making him Lord and Savior and recognizing our need for just that, a Savior. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.